Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. The United Nations Conference of Parties in Glasgow is now behind us. Despite all the hype leading up to the meeting, did the Glasgow Pact provide results, or did the nations of the world miss yet another opportunity for real change and hope for averting planet-wide environmental disaster? Is climate change even a problem that can be addressed by the nations of the world, or are certain interests too entrenched within those systems to allow meaningful action by these political entities? In this episode of Breaking Green, we will talk with Professor Shannon Gibson, who studies the United Nations process to address climate change. Dr. Gibson is an Associate Professor of International Relations and Environmental Studies at the University of Southern California, where she teaches courses and conducts research on global environmental politics, global public health, and civil society. As a decade-long member of the global climate justice movement, she works as a participant action researcher to document the role that civil society and climate justice narratives play in climate and health governance. Dr. Gibson, welcome to Breaking Green. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Before we uh, get to the COP in particular, this this COP, I wanted to ask you, uh, as an educator and college professor, why are you interested in global warming and the process of international agreements? Well, I think for one thing, you know, as a professor, oftentimes we're driven by what is interesting to our students and what they demand that we speak on. And right now, you know, global climate change is the defining issue um, of our time because it links up with all sorts of other issues related to social justice, racial justice, economic justice that that are concerning, you know, for teens and, and people in their early 20s right now in college. And then in terms of looking at international agreements, um, Historically, international law has been kind of problematic. You know, we have all of these different treaties um, dealing with human rights, conflict, the environment, um, and they spend a lot of time writing these very long treaties. And unfortunately, when put into practice, they end up being huge loopholes, and it's very difficult to hold states accountable. Um, and so I think in terms of a, a an issue within international law, climate change is a particularly interesting one to study. There seemed to be a lot of disappointment expressed uh, by Antonio Guterres, the president of the UN, at the close of this conference of parties. Uh, and although he said that there was some progress, he said that nations needed to be more ambitious if the 1.5 degree limit uh, of the Paris Accords were to be realized. Um, so what was your take on on the hype versus what this conference actually produced? I think it's important to put it in the context of what the actual targets are in, in the treaties that we have. So prior to the Paris Agreement under the Kyoto Protocol, our target was this two degrees sort of threshold. Um, and what that references is two degrees above pre-industrial levels that we don't want to go over. Then in the Paris Agreement, they upped that ambition Um when you look at the language, it's a little loose. It's what we kind of call an aspirational goal, but they upped that um, that sort of goal to 1.5 degrees. 
And the reason for that is that there are a number of developing countries that came together and said, hey, you know, if we make it to a two degree world, yes, you in North America, you know, the US, Canada, Europe, y'all will be okay. But for low lying island nations, sub Saharan Africa, landlocked countries, um, 1.5 is still going to be a pretty difficult world. So going into COP26, there was a big, you know, a lot of focus and talk about these targets from a mitigation standpoint. And so if you looked at what all of the commitments that countries have put together added up to going into COP26, um, and I'm using references from the Climate Action Tracker, um, it took us to about a 2.7 degree world. Then if you look at the movement in the two weeks, because we had some important announcements, you know, the United States, the Biden team upped their mitigation targets. India made a huge statement in the first week um, that also improved the mitigation targets. But even in two weeks, that 2.7 drops down to about 2.4. You know, so in those two weeks, yes, we did have some movement. Um, but unfortunately, the cops are a really slow burn. Uh, it seems that, you know, we get a little bit of movement, but it's never as much as we need. Well, 2.7 and 2.4 would would be disastrous, would it not? Absolutely. Um, you know, and the, the other thing that came out, you know, and this was timed purposefully, but we had the new assessment report that came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just prior to the COP. Um, and I think that was good timing because it, it kept the COP, you know, in in the media um, and had us talking about the science because unfortunately, especially in in the U S context, that gets buried a lot. Um, And, you know, if you look at those reports and what's expected, the kind of the the changing weather patterns, ecosystem changes at a 2.5 or higher world will absolutely be catastrophic. Um, So if we don't meet the 1.5, it's going to be catastrophic and we're already seeing uh, consequences. And there's certain poorer nations, is it not correct to say that they're actually bearing the greater brunt uh, of, of some of the current manifestations of climate change? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's this kind of cruel irony, you know, that the countries that have done the least to cause the climate change problem are the ones that are suffering the first and worst, right? So if you look at the Maldives, um, you know, other Tuvalu, other island nations um, that are experiencing water insecurity, food insecurity, also losing their actual statehood because of rising sea levels. Um, this this current loss and damage is happening now. And, you, you know, from someone who lives and works in the United States, I hear a lot of people talk about climate change as if though it's something that will happen in the future. But that's because in the United States, most of us have the privilege of not experiencing climate change as it's happening because we have air conditioning, we drive to work, um, you know, things like that. And so certainly climate change is is not something far out. Um, It is happening now for sure. So I want to drill down on that a bit more. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot has been said about the debt that wealthier nations uh, have to poorer ones, a climate debt. But although there's been a lot of talk about pledges, real actions seem to fall short of the rhetoric. Um, what happened to the loss and damage fund that's been talked about so much to help to help these poorer nations deal with the consequences of basically what the wealthier nations are driving, which is climate change? 
Yeah, so finance was a huge um, topic at COP26. And I think it's important to know that there's different financial mechanisms for different things. So oftentimes you'll hear in the media the $100 billion annually, that target that was set back in 2009 at COP15. Most of that was meant for mitigation. Sorry, how do we help developing countries contribute to mitigating the climate problem in the future? Then we have an adaptation fund, which is how do we deal with, you know, kind of adapting to climatic change as it's occurring. And then this third is loss and damage. And this um, comes from the, that's called the Warsaw mechanism um, and this commitment to set up what's called the Santiago network. Um, But basically saying, okay, well, how do we compensate countries that have already experienced, you know, loss and damage from our changing climate? And We got some movement on mitigation, a little bit more clarity on adaptation, and unfortunately, loss and damage, they kind of punted. Um, They said, yes, we acknowledge this is an issue, and we hereby commit to continue working on it, but let's take this up at COP27 in Egypt. And so they really didn't get to a specificity of really implementing and fleshing out how that funding mechanism will work and how countries can then access that money. So um, unfortunately, it was, was not what a lot of developing countries had had hoped for. Well, uh, you know, uh, a lot of developing countries, I think, were pretty vocal about that. Um, just uh, may- maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but, but COP 15, 2009 in Copenhagen, the world's wealthiest countries that were participating pledged to give poor nations yearly climate funding to reach 100 billion by the year 2020. Does that sound accurate? Yes, that was the, uh, the, the promise at the time. And then also um, then secretary of state Hillary Clinton made this announcement that the U S was going to do 10 billion in fast track funding. And unfortunately what we've seen is that those promises that were made have not been fulfilled. They have not hit that target. And even missing that target, there have been other problems. So for example, um, one of the biggest claims that developing countries make is that that climate funding should be new and additional, meaning we don't want developed countries taking funding from, say, female literacy programs or public health initiatives and shifting it to climate. Um, and a lot of countries have done that, European countries, um, the United States, et cetera. So not only have we missed the target, but even the, the specifics of that funding um, there's there's a lot of ways that countries are getting around putting forth you know the full commitment that they promised. I mean, it just seems like there's always a lot of promises, but then very little follow through. I mean, would someone really not be would be would someone really be missing the point if they were looking at this and saying, "I'm not sure if anything's going to happen. I'm not sure if this is really something that's tractable." you know, within the wheelhouse of, of, of the political class. Yeah, I think this is one of the broader criticisms that's been made of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the system of annual COPs is that they've almost become a stage for countries, right? So world leaders, the presidents, the prime ministers come um, and they make these great pronouncements and they get a lot of PR and media coverage for it. And they all clap each other on the back and say, look what wonderful leaders we are. And then they go home and they do about 60% of what they said they would do. Um, And so I think that's why there rightfully should be a focus on some of the more, um, you know, 
bottom up approaches, the grassroots movements, what people are doing in their own communities, because we certainly need to bridge the divide between what's happening on the ground and then what's happening at these more exclusive negotiations. Climate justice movements. Have you have you watched any of that? Do you have an, a, a take on any of that, the climate, climate justice movements and, and protests and and uh, self-help, let's say, citizen self-help. Yeah, um, as a scholar activist, you know, I've been involved with the climate justice movement for over a decade. Um, starting back in Copenhagen, I've, I've been to climate and other protests at the G20 summit, um, attending world social forums, um, attending protests in Los Angeles where I'm based. And I think one thing we've seen is that the climate justice movement has grown much, has grown so large in the last decade. And the other thing that's been really amazing to watch is sort of what we call social movement spillover. Um, so that climate is no longer just an environmental issue, right? So that they're, they're, we're pulling in people that see the connections between, again, issues relating to gender, um, immigration, race, economic issues, um, that climate justice is just not a singular, you know, kind of tree hugging type of issue, um, that it's going to affect all people in different ways, of course. But so seeing that movement become more vibrant over the last decade has been wonderful. It's also become much more inclusive. Um, it used to be that the environmental movement kind of, um, you tended to see the big the big NGOs take the lead, the ones that came from North America, Europe, um, that didn't maybe feature as much diversity as we would like to see. And now we're seeing grassroots movements that are taking, you know, that are moving their emphasis and their campaigns to the global level. Um, and that's helping to broaden the discussion within the environmental movement. And I think the other thing that we've seen has really been youth involvement. And that's, I would say, in the last couple of years, that has really expanded, especially throughout 2020. And so seeing some of those youth voices in the climate talks has been very welcomed. And the UN has had to respond to that. They are setting up um, several youth, separate youth forums in future COPs. Because, again, you have to look at and think about representation. Having been to, you know, four COPs in person, the the average age of people that are there doing the high level negotiations are in their 40s and 50s or, or older. And when we think about who's going to be dealing with the ramifications of future climatic change, it's obviously the younger generation. And so they should have a voice in this process. Right. I mean, it's, they have no real future if if we are... Uh, or at least they have a very challenging one if if we're looking at some of these uh, more dramatic or drastic consequences if we can't get climate change under control. But let me ask you a li- little bit more about access. I mean, I, I've seen that too. We, 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 we have our, you know, at the COPS, you have the, the youth events, and, and that's great. Uh, and it's great to have that voice. At the same time, what about access overall? I mean, uh, some people have criticized this last conference for being a bit uh, exclusive and set up for those of privilege. Yes, I would say that access was very limited for for COP26 for a couple of reasons. Um, First, you know, having the, the presidents and prime ministers come at the beginning of the COP as opposed to the end, like they used to. Um, oftentimes the United Nations will say, you know, for security reasons, we have to limit the amount of people that are in the, the conference center. And when they make their choices about who to limit, obviously they're not going to cut state delegations. Um, they're not going to tell 
other organizations, you know, uh, governmental organizations, what they do is they tend to start cutting um, among civil society. Um, and so we saw that that happened, which has been happening more and more. But also COVID played a huge part, right? So in terms of being able to travel to Scotland and to be able to get to Glasgow, there were vaccine requirements. There were requirements for quarantining if you didn't have maybe the correct vaccine. And all of these things, you know, when you think when you look at vaccine distribution globally, um, it's well known, right, that a number of our developing countries, our countries in the global south that are begging for vaccines are not getting them. In addition to that, being able to quarantine, it's incredibly cost prohibitive. And then even when you look at the cost to stay in Glasgow, hotels were four to $500 a night. Um, the food, they were price gouging, all sorts of things that just made it incredibly difficult for people who don't have enormous amounts of resources to be able to attend in person. And then you mentioned also some of these other, you know, what we call the side events that the United Nations hosts. So they do have spaces for civil society, for youth um, voices, for indigenous groups. However, not just sort of metaphorically or on the, on the fringes, they actually oftentimes logistically are on the fringes of the talks. So where the civil society spaces is often physically disconnected from the official negotiations. So, for example, I can recall at COP 16 when we were in Cancun and COP 23, which was in Bonn, if you wanted to get from the civil society space to the official negotiations, it would sometimes take you 15 to 30 minutes to go by bike or by bus. And if you're trying to attend multiple meetings, because civil society, again, tends to be a bit more resource strapped, you have one person doing lots of things, you physically couldn't attend the, the the things that maybe you were tasked with being a part of. So there were a lot of barriers that I think in some really did contribute to this being, you know, the one of the whitest, most exclusive, most privileged cops that we've seen in recent history. This is your host, Steve Taylor, and we will be back right after this. Global Justice Ecology Project partners with small nonprofits. When a group or organization whose non-for-profit work closely aligns with our mission by becoming a fiscal sponsor. This helps them minimize bureaucracy so they can focus on their crucial work for ecological and social justice, forest protection, and human rights. GJEP is proud to sponsor the third international conference, Paulo Freire, The Global Legacy. The conference celebrates the world-renowned Brazilian educator, philosopher, social justice advocate, and one of the most preeminent educators of the 20th century. The Paulo Freire Conference brings together educators, academics, students, researchers, and practitioners to reflect on the current status of his pedagogical thought and its application across a wide variety of academic disciplines. Welcome back to Breaking Green. Current estimates are that there needs to be an annual reduction of 27 metric tons of CO2 to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, but current pledges get us only a quarter of the way there. And we've heard all the hype uh, leading up to Copenhagen. I'm sorry, uh, leading up to Glasgow. And how global warming is uh, an extinction-level event for, for humankind. Uh, we saw all of this hype. We saw more emphasis placed on youth, which is a good thing. But given that gap of what we're doing and what is needed to be done, what is one to make of this? Uh, did 
COP26, bring what was needed? I think in looking at all the different aspects, you know, mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage, finance, um, we had small progress in certain areas, but it certainly did not deliver on what the world requires at this point in time. And I think that a lot of those bigger movements perhaps will have to take place more sort of locally um, at municipal state levels um, because just the, the movement and the traction at the UN is just really slow right now. I think one other thing that contributed to that is countries um, were lacking a little bit of leadership. Um, you know, on, in, in Copenhagen, we had the Obama administration come in and make a lot of promises. And that did actually get some other countries on board. I think one thing that I saw that was quite clear at this COP was the amount of soft power that the United States has lost um, in, in the last four years. Um, and a lot of countries kind of are of the mentality of, all right, well, they say they're leading now but what's going to happen after the next election, right? And so um, now you have China and India and some other countries that are trying to take on this leadership role, um, but they have their own challenges in economic development um, and things like that. So I think we're seeing a loss of sort of political guidance um, at this very high level. And hopefully, you know, moving forward, we can get more traction and more political will over time. But the, the process itself is complicated and clearly too slow. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of the solutions that are being proposed. So there's been a lot of criticism regarding uh, geoengineering, uh, new green revolutions, the pushing of GMOs, uh, this over-reliance on offsets. Um, are we just being too critical? What's what's? How do you view that? Are our interests using this crisis more to promote market solutions that benefit them than actually addressing emissions? Absolutely. I think offsetting is something um, that's particularly worrisome. So under our previous climate treaties, Developed countries argued quite strenuously that they couldn't be expected, you know, to bear all these mitigation costs within their own country. It would be too politically and economically costly. So they argued for what became known as flexible mechanisms. And within this umbrella of flexible mechanisms, it includes things like carbon trading, which is something that, for example, the European Union has embraced quite heavily, um, and a series of offset schemes. And I think you can just look at the European Union and what happened in their first, you know, the first two or three rounds of them trying to implement that training scheme. And it was pretty bad. Um, the first thing they did was ask, you know, different sectors how much they thought they would pollute in the upcoming years as a way to, to divvy out carbon credits, which are more or less you know, permits to pollute. Um, they said, how, how much do you think you're going to pollute? Of course, because business interests prevailed, they all overestimated. So then the European Union gave out those credits and they gave them out for free. And then what happens when you have too much supply and not enough demand, right? The, the, the carbon credit prices bounced all over the place and remained very low for a long time. Um, some other issues with trading and, and offsetting, you know, the devil is certainly in the details of a lot of these things. So let's take, for example, someone, you know, a country invests in um, 
what we call reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, what's known as RED within the climate talks. So you could have a country like Norway that maybe partners up with an oil company to then pay the government of Brazil to preserve some of part of the you know, Amazon, right? The rainforest. And then for that, they can get carbon credits. Um, the problem with that, though, is we've now created a permanent financial instrument tied to something that lives and dies in nature, right? And so then we have all these problems with the accounting. Greenpeace has done some pretty good investigative work on looking at the accounting problems of some of these projects. We have enormous amounts of leakage. And so the problem with this is that with these offsets and they're not being managed or overseen very well, you have countries that can claim that they've reduced, you know, however many metric tons of CO2, but in the real world, that doesn't add up. And so we could think collectively that, oh, we're reaching a two degree target. But if everyone is making these small mistakes, either purposefully or accidentally, um, there's lots of leakage. Um, and I'm not even getting to the social concerns about some of these offset projects and other things like nature-based solutions, but we could collectively think, oh, we've hit the target, but what if we're off by 0.5 degrees, right? And so some of these projects are kind of still allowing developed countries to pursue business as usual. They don't have to make the hard changes they need at, at home to start transitioning into greener, cleaner economies, renewables and things like that. And basically, we're just prolonging the timeline as we use some of these solutions that might not, maybe shouldn't be termed solutions. Um, maybe they, they're necessary in the short to midterm, but they're certainly long term, never going to get us to where we need to be. We talked about limited access, that it was, uh, you know, it's harder for, for certain groups or interests to participate fully. Is there access, do you think, or at least influence by, oh, um, corporations or market interests in these negotiations? Oh, yes. This COP, um, there was a, a bit of media coverage that that said, you know, that the largest delegation wasn't actually a state delegation, but if you took all of the representatives from coal, oil, and gas and put them together, it was some 500 participants. Um, there's huge amount of access to um, what, what they get called bingos or business and industry NGOs, which again, kind of dubious. I don't know that we should be calling businesses and companies non-governmental organizations, the same that we would call it an environmental um, advocacy group or, you know, an indigenous people's organization. Um, but they do get classified as part of civil society in this process. So they have enormous access inside the COP, but outside informally, they buy a lot of access, right? So whether they're paying to be a corporate sponsor like Unilever did, um, then they get to go to all the private dinners, and they get to meet with people privately in the halls and at the bars, right? And so they, they do have this another extra level of added influence that, again, the everyday environmentalist or frontline community member would not have. So it's been said uh, on this program uh, by a guest, and probably more than one, that any real change is, is, is not going to happen within the current system. So if I say to you... System change. What do you have to say to that? I think that that's a critical component, right? Um, unfortunately, and we've, we've seen this through the COPs, but also some of the, what we call the mega conferences, right? Like, so the, the Earth Summit in Rio, then Rio plus 20 back in 2012. 
one of the major themes, um, one was looking at sort of like organizations for sustainable development. The other was looking at the, the green prospects for the green economy. And I think that what we see is that no matter what issue we deal with, the, pers- the pervasiveness of capitalist logic um, and, and thinking in terms of problem solving is incredibly, um, you know, it's, it's, it's seen throughout every corner of these talks. And so when we're talking about climate change, we're not just talking about environmental or scientific or technical solutions. We really have to rethink how society, our economy, um, those major systems are are set up and who the winners and losers are in those systems and who gets a voice at the table. So I think system change is critical to this discussion. So Professor Gibson, you you have students and I I suspect at the at the institution you teach, a lot of them are traditional students, so younger uh youth. Uh what's their take on this? So in my course in the semester um I was teaching my class on the politics of the global environment. And I had my own small research team that was following um, COP26. And I think kind of the the collective, there's sort of two things that stand out um, from what what they have told me. Um, The first uh, is that students are, in addition to dealing with the troubles of COVID-19 and the return to in-person classes, um, they're also battling eco-depression. Right. That is, as we watch um, these talks proceed year after year, and as you've mentioned, you know, the the winds, if we get any, seem relatively small, um, that that's added to their sort of collective anxiety um, for this generation. The second thing, and I thought this was interesting because I sat with four of my students when they watched President Obama because um, former President Obama made sort of a surprise speech at COP26. Um they were a little ticked off by some of his comments. Um, a lot of them felt like some of the comments being made by politicians right now that say what we need is the youth to stand up and you need to take the charge and lead the way. Um, they found somewhat condescending that, you know, they, that they are willing to try and do those things, but they also want older generations to take responsibility for their failures to act on these issues. And they've also made comments, you know, like, well, we'd be, we would love to lead, but if you're getting a degree in the social sciences, or if you're attending a four-year university, we also have to pay off our enormous student debt when we get out. Right. So there's only so many, so much that, that younger people can do in the context of the world that we live in now. Um, And so I think that they're also getting a little frustrated with some of the standard speeches, um, whether it's conservative, liberal, doesn't matter um, that come from politicians. And, And that's why I think we see more of our youth kind of leaning towards the grassroots organizations and and level of action as opposed to um, maybe going the more like formalized political route. Is there anything that I have not asked you about this COP or global warming in in general that you'd like to discuss? I think there was um, an interesting political development related to the mention of fossil fuels and coal in the treaty um, that I think is is interesting to, to, to consider because the sort of mainstream media coverage of it, I think, misses a bit of the the backstory or what's between the lines. So in the because we I was following the iterations of the of the treaty as they were developing each each day. Basically they negotiate during the day and during night they work on the text and the new one comes out very early in the morning. And so at first we were really excited to see this language about the phase out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies because Surprisingly not enough, um, 
coal and fossil fuel, those words have not been in a previous treaty on climate change, if you can believe that. Um, but then what happened was over the course of about 72 hours, that very small changes to that language had a huge impact. So in the next iteration, instead of saying phase out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies, it then read phase out of unabated coal and inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And so what unabated coal is basically a code word for is carbon capture and storage technology, right? So some of these, you know, geoengineering types of technologies, which a lot of us are quite concerned about. Um, and then inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Um, I would love to know who gets to make that determination of what is an efficient versus inefficient fossil fuel subsidy. Um, and then by the end, that the word phase out was then changed to phase down, right? So it started as some fairly strong language got watered down. But I think the other thing to point out is that in the media, a lot of people are saying that this was China and India that made this change. And I just wanted to point out two things. The first is, why wasn't oil or natural gas included and only coal? And if you think about that, it's because it's largely developed countries trying to put the impetus on the developing countries who are still more dependent on coal. The second thing is, we didn't hear anybody from the US, Canada, Australia, Japan, jumping up and down saying, no, 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 we don't want this watered down language. So I think it might be perhaps a bit unfair to hang this completely on um, China and India and other developing countries. Um, so I think that was also an interesting and still somewhat saddening development. That's a very interesting observation. Uh, brings to mind that there was a lot of daylight uh, uh, between what President Biden, United States President Biden was saying, and what the United States delegation was committing to. Am I right about that? Yes, this happens quite a bit. Um, as a professor in international relations, we often refer to this as two-level games, right? So you have what a country is doing domestically, and everyone knew internationally what was happening at home in the U.S., for our, my home, um, in the U.S. about the reconciliation bill and all of these other challenges um, with Biden trying to create this coalition on funding and finance and climate was tied up in that. And then you have the, at the international level, um, where oftentimes, again, much you know more progressive or flowery statements might be made. And this happened also back at uh, in Copenhagen in COP15, right, where President Obama went to Copenhagen and made all of these commitments and pronouncements for the Paris Agreement, and then back home could not get a coalition willing to support a lot of that. So we see this happen quite a bit, not just in the United States, it can happen in other countries as well, um, where there seem to be kind of two sets of talking points. Um, and then you just kind of hope that they'll meet in the middle somewhere in the next year. Hmm. For those uh, who may be a little disappointed in the COP, um, do you have any suggestions where they might turn to some organizations or, or forums that they might feel uh, are a little bit more, oh, I don't know, realistic and uh, are sincere in their approach? Yeah, I think there's a lot of great organizations out there. Um, I think as an activist, you know, it's, it's important to find the organization that speaks to you in terms of kind of your, your ideology, um, your level of, of action that you want to engage in. But some of the groups that I've seen that have, have a really good um, sort of 
outline of how people can get involved, you know, like the Sunrise Movement, um, also the Indigenous Environmental Network, um, Grassroots Global Justice. There's a lot of organizations out there that have very specific programs in mind, right? Like what system change would actually look like. Um, And they're having that conversation with folks in politics that are focusing on the Green New Deal. Of course, their take is a little bit different. Um, But whether, you know, you want to get into um, campaigning, fundraising, social media, you know, some of these, a lot of these organizations have spaces so that any young person or older person, um, you know, given your own, your own skill set and talents would be able to plug effectively into the climate justice movement. And let's not forget Global Justice Ecology Project. Exactly. Thank you, uh, Professor Gibson, for joining us. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a Global Justice Ecology Project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1-716-257-4187.